0: We'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 as we continue our series in Philippians. And as we do that, uh, before we get into the text today, I want to I reemphasize and sort of help uh, bring in the context of, this, of the scripture today. But I want to reemphasize the preceding text and the preceding sermons that I, that I preach on the need to discern godly influences versus ungodly influences. If you remember the context of, our, of where we are in Philippians, Paul uh, just got done talking about what our all-consuming, overwhelming goal should be in life as believers. And that's becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Walking in sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in conformity to God's word. And after he implores us to do that, the Holy Spirit then through Paul's example, tells us that we ought to discern who is influencing us in our life. Are we being influenced by godly influences or are we, be influencing, are we being influenced by ungodly influences? And I wanted to just reemphasize that. And I don't think I can emphasize that too much, friends, because there is power and there is great, uh, there is great warning in those whom we spend time with. If we're spending time with people and, we're, and they're not have the same goals as us, when our goal is to become like Christ and we're being influenced by those people who that's not their goal, we got to really be careful. We got to look for those who are seeking to be like Christ and the, and the people we're around, like we should be around people who aren't seeking Christ to bring them to Christ. Amen. That's the backdrop of where we are in Philippians Today, So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin to look at how Christians are to deal with conflict. How Christians are to deal with conflict. And I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved I urge Udiah and I urge Sintichi to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look to your word, God, as those who are seeking to be more like Christ, that you would help us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to the word of God. Lord, I pray that the words that I speak would be that which you have spoken and none, nothing more, nothing less. God, I pray you would open up our hearts and change us by the word to glorify Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, mishandling conflict is the surest way to wreck relationships. Amen. Handling conflict, excuse me, handling conflict in an ungodly way is one of the main reasons for the destruction of the family today. It's one of the main reason for destruction of marriages, for destruction of friendships, for destruction of business ventures, for the destruction of civil government, and it's the main reason for the destruction of local churches. Many Christians do not know how to handle conflict in a biblical, God-honoring way. Either that or we do know the right way to act. But when we're faced with a conflict, our emotions kick in and it takes over. And then we justify ourselves in our actions. But I think for the most part, I think we don't know the biblical way to handle conflict. And brothers and sisters, the devil is, is active. He is using Conflict actively, daily, to wreck relationships. I mean, can you think of anybody right now that you know uh, that's been in a conflict, that because of that conflict, that two people that loved each other dearly separate and have never spoken to each other again? I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of at least a handful. Because of the unbiblical way that we tend to handle conflict. Now, part of the problem is that we've not been taught from childhood how to handle conflict in a biblical way, how to manage conflict. I mean, you think about most kids when they grow up, if they have siblings, you know, they're sent to segregated schools so they never have to deal with conflict in their own home. It's a lot easier for siblings to be friends with people outside of their home than the friends than their siblings inside their home. And when conflict arises within the home, most parents, instead of teaching their children how to manage and work through those conflicts in a God-honoring way, well, they just don't deal with it or let them separate and find their own friends. And then, if you think about children within the school system in general, they're really not taught how to biblically deal with conflict. I mean, what happens when children, when they have a conflict with a friend, they don't know how to deal with it, so they just separate and they go find new friends. And then when those children grow up into adults, guess what happens? The same exact thing. Adults handle conflict the same way children do oftentimes, do they not? Things don't go their way. They are offended. They can't deal with it. And so they just never talk to that person again and go find new friends. And then the same cycle happens over and over. And then those adults that can't handle and manage conflict in a godly way, they enter into the local church. And then in local churches, what happens in local churches? Conflict's inevitable. So we haven't been taught from childhood how to biblically manage conflict, and this affects every area of our life. It affects our marriages, our workplaces, our church. And this is what Paul addresses here in our text. Managing conflict in a godly way. Uh, Brothers and sisters, when we learn how to deal with conflict biblically, it'll do five things. One, it'll help you get closer to your goal, which is what? To become more like Christ. I pray that that's your goal, is to be more conformed to the image of Christ. When you learn how to manage conflict in a godly way, you get closer to that goal. And second, it helps you to stand firm in the Lord. You want to have spiritual stability in your life. You want not to be tossed to and fro in a spiritual, emotional manner. Learn to deal with conflict in a biblical way. Number three, it'll actually deepen your relationships with others. When you face conflict with someone and you work it out in a God-honoring, biblical way, and you end up on the other side of that conflict, you grow closer to that person because you've worked through something so very tough, but you've come out on the other side uh, and you've dealt with it in love and peace, and now you are growing in a deeper relationship. And four, you also better your witness in the world you better your witness in the world. I mean, how, how awful it is and to our shame within the church that we deal with conflict oftentimes worse or, and not, nothing better than the world. And the world's watching. When, they, when the world sees Christians, as Galatians says, bite and devour each other, when they see Christians fight and lash out at each other, just like the world, I mean, how is that, how is that witness going so learning how to deal with conflict will better our witness in the world. And then fi- finally, it'll help glorify Christ. However, friends, on the other side, on the flip side, learning to deal with conflict in a biblical manner will cost you. It will cost you pride. And it will cost you the grip of control that you so desire, that you and I so desire in our flesh. I want to define what I mean by Conflict. In, in our study this week and probably next week as well. The American Heritage Dictionary defines conflict as a state of open, often prolonged fighting. It's a battle or a war. It also defines it as a state of disagreement or disharmony between persons or ideas, as in a clash. Merriam-Webster's uh, defines conflict as a strong disagreement between people Groups, etc., that result in often angry argument. And I want to make the distinction that what we're talking about today and what Paul addresses in the text is a conflict, not just a disagreement. Because we will have disagreements, and disagreement in and of itself is not a sin. We should work through those in a godly way. But when they're not worked through in a godly way, that turns to conflict and strife and battles and wars. And that's when it becomes sinful. That's when it becomes sinful. So ideally, we want to handle our disagreements biblically so that we don't run into conflict in a sinful way. And we'll actually look at, probably next week, how we can avoid that sinful type of conflict, battle, war. But today we're going to address the text, which is how to handle conflict when it shows its ugly face. Let's look at our text, Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> so here we say, starting in verse 2, where he says, I urge you, Dian, I urge Sintichi, to live in harmony in the Lord. Paul addresses a conflict here that's arising in the church of Philippi. This conflict must be very significant for him to publicly name two ladies in the church. He names it in the letter. Can you imagine your name being written for all of eternity for a conflict that you've caused in church? Now, all throughout Philippians, if you've been listening to the sermons, all throughout Philippians, the idea is to grow in unity for the sake of the gospel. Paul addresses this same idea that where he addresses these two ladies to live in harmony in the Lord. Your version might say be of the same mind. He addresses and uses the same phraseology throughout the book of Philippians in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and now chapter four. In chapter two, verse two, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit intent on one purpose. So see, Paul keeps hitting the same idea throughout the, church, throughout the book of Philippians to grow in unity, to grow in like-mindedness, to grow in love together. Obviously, there was an issue within the church of Philippi with unity. And up until now, he hasn't named any names, but now he specifically names these two ladies to work in harmony, to be of the same mind. Udiah and Sintichi. And they're only mentioned here in the Bible, nowhere else. But these women were significant members of this church of Philippi. In the text in verse 3, Paul refers to them as his fellow workers. And he says that these women shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Well, what was the cause of the gospel that Paul struggled so much with? Well, when he founded the church, if you just rewind five to ten years... In Acts chapter 16, when Paul goes to Europe, Philippi is the first place he lands. And it says there, instead of going into the synagogue, which is his custom, he goes in and attempts to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. If you look at Acts 16, it says he actually goes to a river where he was supposing some women would be praying. And there's some background to that. But he goes there and he finds some Jewish women praying. Now, why would he not go to the synagogue? Well, this presupposes that they didn't have a synagogue in Philippi. To have a synagogue back then, you had to have 11 Jewish men to be able to start a synagogue. So this tells us that there wasn't enough men, Jewish men, to start a synagogue in Philippi. But there was a group of women, Jewish women, God-fearing women, who would go down to the river and pray because that was their custom to do since the deportation of Babylon where they had no place to worship, they would go down to the river and weep. And now when Paul says that these two women shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, we may not know for sure, but what I believe is that these two women were down there by the river when Paul first went into Philippi. And, and he they helped Paul start the church and helped Paul in advancing the gospel in Philippi. So these weren't just two, you know, casual members of the church. These were two very prominent, important members of the church of Philippi. And Paul singles them out because there was some type of ordeal going. There was some type of conflict that was breaking out in the church. Paul needed to act swiftly to address it. I don't think this was any small thing. Now this conflict could have either been with each other, which most Bible scholars think so, but it could also be a conflict that they were having with the church. Because he urges them to, be, uh, to live harmoniously, to be of the same mind. So it could have also been that these two women were being in a conflict with the rest of the church. We're not really sure, but what we do know is that this was no small matter. I want you to put yourself in the, the feet of the church of Philippi. Imagine sitting at the church. You know, Paul delivered this letter to be read in front of the whole church. Now, while I've taken almost a year to preach through this book, uh, it took about probably 10 minutes for them to read love. And imagine sitting in there, Paul, who founded this church, most of them knew Paul by name and face. Paul keeps addressing this unity issue, this unity issue. And remember that Epaphroditus, one of the church members, was sent by the church of Philippi to Paul. So Paul had very intimate knowledge about what was going on in the church. Can you imagine sitting there? And hearing this letter about unity and being of the same mind, striving together for the gospel, live, be of the same mind, be like Christ, be in humility. Can you imagine the conviction that they started to feel? Because unity was a problem throughout the church, not with, just with these two women. Can you imagine Udaya and Sintichi sitting there, being convicted as this letter is being read about living and growing within unity within the local church? And then their names are called. Can you imagine what that felt like? Can you imagine the conviction they would have been under? Now also, I, I tend to think that this was an issue that the whole church knew about. Otherwise, you know, people would have been thinking like, why is Paul talking about these two women? What's going on? We don't know. I think it was a very public thing. I think it was a, some type of conflict that everybody knew about. And again, the overreaching theme of the epistle is growing in unity for the sake of the gospel. So here we have an example of conflict that's infecting the local church. How do we deal with that? Conflict will absolutely threaten the local church if we let it. Now on the flip side, friends, living in harmony with one another, growing in love for one another, growing in like-mindedness for one another will also help us in our sanctification as a church. It will help us also to stand firm in the Lord. So if we desire to be a healthy local church, we must deal, we must manage, learn to deal with conflict in a biblical manner. And it doesn't start in the church. Conflict management starts at home, does it not? It starts at home. That's where the real, real groundwork Happens. If you can't work through conflict at home, you won't be able to work through conflict within the local church. Now, as we look at some of the principles in this text, I want you to consider some past conflicts that you've been involved with and in. Uh, little or small. Perhaps this week you were involved in some conflicts. Or think about some in the past that may have been bigger, and I want you to think. Within that conflict, whether it was within the local church, whether it was within a friend, within within children, home, or the marriage or, or work, whatever that conflict is, I want you to consider that. Consider your actions, your non-actions, your words. And as we go through this text and look at the principles in this text, I want you to open up your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to to do His work, to conform you to the image of Christ and correct you because. The Bible is good for correction, amen? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, that we don't deal with conflict a lot of times the way that God would have us to, amen? All right, what principles can we draw from this text? There are a few I wanna briefly go over. Number one is managing conflict biblically starts with you. Managing conflict biblically starts with you. Well, of course, Mark, what do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the text here, Paul says, I urge Udaya and I urge Sentichi. And when he says I urge, he uses the word twice. He says, I urge Udaya. And then he repeats himself, and I urge Sintichi. So what does that mean? Well, he doesn't say, I urge both you and Udiah and Setichi. Why does Paul do that? He's singing them out individually. You see what I'm saying? If, I, if there was a conflict between two people here and I said, I really want you, Bob and Sally, to work harmoniously. Well, if they're in a conflict, what it immediately comes to their mind? Well, I know I, I'm doing the right thing. They need to be better. And the other person's thinking the same thing, are they not? Well, yeah, you're right. Preach it. Preach it, preacher. They need to do better in this conflict. But you see, Paul... I think it's very strategic that Paul does this because they are in a strife, in some type of conflict, so he urges them individually to be of the same mind, to be in harmony. So conflict, friends, starts with you. We're not to look at what the other person is doing or is not doing. That's the easy part, right? Is to tell the other person what they need to be doing in order to... Better or to manage the conflict. But I learned this a long time ago, and I try to take it to heart, and I fail often. But, friends, when you're in a conflict with whoever it is, whatever this situation is, how the other person behaves and reacts and says, does not say, is none of your business. Do you know that? It is all between them and God. What I mean by that is if you're in a conflict and the other person is You know they're not doing the right thing. You know they may be even saying the wrong things or treating you the wrong way. Friends, that is between them and God. You know what? You can pray for them. But conflict starts with you. It starts what you can do to manage the conflict biblically. So we need to take our eyes off others and we need to put the eyes on ourselves. What is it that I can do to better the issue and the conflict that's at hand. And notice what Paul says when he urges both of them to live in harmony. He doesn't have a period there. It says, in the Lord. In the Lord. Friends, the only way that we can truly have harmony as brothers and sisters in Christ is to be walking right with the Lord. You know, the word in the Greek, in, Where it's used in the Lord is almost as in there's like a sphere, there's a realm, and that's where we need to be. We need to be in the Lord, we need to be walking right with the Lord to manage conflict biblically. You give me two people who are walking right in the Lord, and living in harmony is not only possible, it's probable. I'm gonna repeat that. You give me two people who are both walking right in the Holy Spirit in the Lord. Living in harmony is not only possible, it's probable. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it's probable if we're focused on what we can do. Number two, so first we must manage conflict. It starts with us. Number two, we must be active in addressing conflict when it arises. We must be active in addressing conflict when it arises. Paul addresses this very quickly and very urgently by the way he writes the text. Paul knows this must be addressed publicly. If it wasn't that big of a deal, he wouldn't have used the two ladies' names, but it was a very big deal. It needed to be addressed, and it needed to be addressed soon, otherwise it was gonna break out into something worse than it already was. When Paul says, I urge to both of the ladies, this word urge means to implore Or to entreat. It's a very strong word. It not only means encourages. It means much more than that. It literally means to plea or to beg. And that word. Is often translated in the New Testament. As to pray. Paul was pleading with these ladies. He was begging these ladies. He was praying that these ladies. Would live in harmony. Because disharmony. Because strife and conflict, brothers and sisters, it only gets worse if we don't deal with it in a biblical manner. It only gets worse. Ephesians 4.31 kind of shows how things get worse if we don't deal with it. Where Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. See, conflict often arises when there's a disagreement or there's a hurt or an offense, a difference of the mind. And if, if it's left undealt with, this turns to bitterness. We see Ephesians 4.31. But if we don't deal with this bitterness, if we leave it there and we don't address the conflict, that leads to wrath and anger. See, there's a progression there which then leads to clamor, which is just another level of anger. And then it leads to slander. You see what it says there in Ephesians 4.31? It leads to slander. See, friends, if we don't deal with conflict, if we let that bitterness fester, then our flesh gets involved and we start imagining things about people that's simply not true. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love thinketh no evil. What he means by that is that we think the best of people. Even if it turns out to be the worst, we are to think the best of people. In Proverbs, it says "An evil man is suspicious about everything. When you and I don't deal with conflict and we let the bitterness fester, then our emotions get involved and our imaginations get involved and we start thinking things and we start being suspicious about other people about their motives, and usually over half of that isn't true. Have you ever been involved in a a disagreement where you've made an assumption about somebody and turns out to be absolutely not true? I think we all have, right? So we can't let the bitterness fester. We can't let the conflict go unaddressed. Conflict must not be left alone. It must be addressed in a godly way. And there is wisdom on when and how and where we address conflict and and that manner of what we do, right? So there is, but we can't just leave it alone. Number three, we must be active in pursuing peace. We must be active in pursuing peace. So not only should we be active in addressing the conflict when it arises, we must be active to do whatever it is that we can to pursue peace. We must simply be a peacemaker. The text says, Paul says and urges them to live in harmony. The idea here is that they're living in peace. There's great peace among brothers and sisters in Christ when we live in harmony, when we're pursuing peace. We must be active. This is an imperative. When Paul says to live in harmony, he's not giving them a suggestion, he's giving them an imperative. To live in harmony, you must do it. It is your Christian duty to be of the same mind, to live in peace, to live in harmony. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now that word, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the peacekeepers. And there's a difference. Someone who wants to always keep the peace, Just keep peace. Don't talk about it. Right? We know people like that. I think we all probably have family like that. There's always someone in the family that doesn't want to talk about anything. They just want to sweep everything under the rug and and pretend everything's okay when when things are really not. So we're not called to be peacekeepers, but we're called to be peacemakers. So when there's a conflict arises, we do what we can to go and make peace with love, with gentleness, with humility, it's an active word here to be a peacemaker. And God is a God of peace, is he not? Do you believe that? Do you believe God is the God of peace? Do a word search in scripture for how many times God is referred to as the God of peace. I quickly found 25 and I listed them here. I was going to read them, but I'll let you go back and do that. But throughout Paul's letters, he says things like grace to you and peace from God, our father. That's how he introduces most of his epistles and how he ends a lot of them. Now, may the God of peace be with you, he says. Even in chapter uh, four of our text today, he says in verse nine, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And then take back a few verses before in verse seven. And it says, and the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. So, if you believe that God is the God of peace, if you truly believe that, let me ask you why don't we have peace in our homes, by which we say the God of peace dwells? Why don't we have peace in our churches? Why are churches so full of divisions and strife and conflict? When we claim that God is the God of peace and we can't even have peace in our own hearts. We can't have peace in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships. Something's wrong, something's missing. And friends, I contend that we don't have peace It's because we're not pursuing peace, but we're walking in the flesh. We're walking in the flesh. It is your responsibility, believer, And it's your duty to pursue peace at all costs, both here in the church, at home, in your marriage, in your relationships. Husbands, it's your job. It's your job to pursue peace in your marriage with your children. Wives, it's your job to pursue peace in your home. It's your job to pursue peace with your husband. We're commanded to pursue peace. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men Psalm thirty-four fourteen says depart from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it the Apostle Peter uses this text in 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 11 for he must turn away from evil and do good he must seek peace and pursue it Romans 14 19 says so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another do you pursue the things which make for peace or do you pursue the things that satisfy your flesh paul is urging these two women to stop thinking about themselves stop putting themselves first and to seek for peace when peace is not pursued friends in the conflict whatever it is galatians 5:15 kicks in like high gear where it says, but if you, divide, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Is that not what happens when conflict arises and we're not truly seeking humility and pursuing peace? What happens? We bite and devour each other. We bite our heads off. We walk in the flesh. We justify our position. We think we're right and the other person's wrong. And although that may be, That's not how we are are to behave. We are to pursue peace at all costs. And it says, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And isn't that what happens when conflict arises and people are just at each other, whether it's in the church or at a home? You end up consuming each other. And then the relationship fails and is wrecked because we cannot pursue peace. Well, you may ask, I think this follows the question, well, Mark, how do we seek for peace? How do, what are some practical ways that we can pursue peace without just dropping the whole thing and sweeping another rug and pretending nothing happened and just going on with your merry life? That's not seeking peace. That's ignoring the problem. I'm going to give you a few practical ways to seek peace in the midst of a conflict. Number one, we must be clothed in Humility. We must be clothed in humility. And this is why Paul addresses humility in chapter 2 of the same uh, epistle in Philippians 2, verse 1 through 4. Where Paul is saying, hey, make my joy complete in verse 2 by maintaining the same love, the same mind, be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's imploring the Philippians to to be unified and to live harmoniously, to be at peace with one another. And how do you do that? Where well, he tells you in verse three and four, He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others and have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the first way that we can pursue peace in the midst of a conflict is to be clothed in humility. To be clothed in humility. I was reminded a couple of weeks ago at a father-daughter retreat that I took uh, some of my daughters on. That when we feel like we're being wronged, he said. When we feel like we're not getting that which we deserve, we need to be reminded that we don't deserve any better. We literally don't. We don't deserve any better than the treatment that we're getting. As a matter of fact, if God had not extended his mercy and grace upon you, you deserve a lot worse. And I'll tell you that that rang true in my home this week. When something was done or not done that I thought that somebody else should have done or not have done, and I got all in a frizzy about it internally, she doesn't know because I didn't say anything. I drove away and thought exactly what I just told you. I said, Mark, you actually deserve a lot worse. You actually deserve an ungodly wife who hates you. And I started replaying these things that I don't deserve the wife that my God blessed me with. And that helped. That helped me to be humble in this situation. It helped me to walk in humility. Now, I will say that I've failed many times and I have spoken when I ought not to have spoken and caused conflict where conflict was not needed. Uh, So I don't say that to boast upon myself, but to get the point across that we must first be clothed in humility. Second way we are to seek for peace in the midst of a conflict is we must control our anger. We must control our anger. Friends, anger works in opposition for peace. Anger works against peace. And nothing evokes the emotions in anger more than conflict, does it not? Anger can easily boil up when we feel attacked, when we feel threatened, or if we feel unloved, or if we feel uh, mistreated, or misunderstood, or even misrepresented. It's so easy for anger to boil up. And if it left unchecked, it will cause us to sin in our anger. So we must control anger in the midst of conflict. Now, friends, many believers like to point to Ephesians 4.26 to justify their anger, which says, be, be angry and yet do not sin. But let's be real about this. When you're in the midst of conflict and you're angry, is that a righteous, holy anger? I would contend 99.99% of the time it's not. And why are believers so quick to point to Ephesians 4.26 where it's the only unclear scripture in all of Scripture that talks about permissibility to be angry. And we call it righteous indignation. And we try to justify that we're angry about something when in fact most of the time it's a sinful anger. You see, most of us want to ignore the hundreds of other scriptures about anger. And we want to point to this one scripture that to justify our angry, our anger, but Many people forget that in Ephesians four, five verses later, when Paul says, be angry and sin not, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So why would Paul five verses later after he says, yes, be angry, just don't sin. Five verses later, he says, now put it all Away, And the word that he uses angry is or gay, which is the noun form of what he uses in verse 26. When he says be angry, that's the verb form. It's the same exact word used in different form. Why would he say that? And why does a plethora of other texts says to get anger away from you? It even says to stay away from those who are hot tempered. And why in James it says the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. So I'll grant maybe it. Maybe I grant it. I don't believe that there's such thing as a righteous anger. I believe the text is telling us something different, to be angry and sin not. But if I grant it to you, say there is a righteous way to be angry. If we're real, is that, do we, are we really righteously angry when we're in conflict with one another? I would contend no. I would contend No. I think it's just best to look at all the other scriptures that says, get rid of anger, get rid of anger, don't touch it, don't be around people who are easily provoked to anger, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. That's the way that I take. Now, people say, well, aren't we supposed to hate the things that God hates? Absolutely. But I can hate things that God hates without having anger in my heart. I can hate abortion, but it doesn't mean I'm sitting there livid, red-faced, and angry. Again, look what the fruit of your anger does. Does the fruit of your anger produce the righteousness of God? Did Jesus have anger when he flipped tables? Yes, God is angry with the wicked every day. God has wrath. God has anger. I don't think I'm anywhere near Jesus to have that type of righteous anger. So I just say, just get rid of it. It doesn't do any good to us. It doesn't do any good. We should hate what God hates. But if you just look at all the texts again, to get rid of anger, it would help us. Even the fruits of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5.19, a lot of it has to do with anger and outbursts of anger. Colossians 3.8 says, but now you also put them all aside. Get rid of them. Get rid of what? Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. As I said, it's James 1.20. the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we must to pursue peace, we must be clothed in humility. We must control our anger, and third, we must control our tongue. We must control our tongue. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who, who hear. When you're in the midst of a conflict, friends, does that describe you, that text? Ephesians 4.29, Proverbs 10.19, says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Or another scripture says, sin abounds. The more we talk, the more we sin. Is that not true? And especially in the midst of a conflict, the more that we talk, the more that we are going to sin. So we need to have wisdom. And we need to control our tongue. But Mark, you don't understand. You might say. I've been wronged by a person, and they must know. They must be punished. I must tell them what they've done that is wrong. Otherwise, they'll keep doing it. Have you ever felt that way? I have, but we all do. I must say something, because they're just going to keep on doing it again. Well, first, I'd like to remind you that God says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And the Bible says, Do not repay evil for evil. The Bible says to bless your enemies to pray for them. And when you're in the midst of a conflict, if it's somebody you love, they're not your enemy. How much more should you respond in love? If you're not getting right treatment, respond in love anyway, because that is our Christian duty. Sometimes the best thing to say is to just to simply say nothing. If you're in the middle of a conflict, you can ask for some time. Hey, I need some time to think about that. We don't need... I did say we need to address conflict, but when our emotions are provoked and we're ready to fight, that is the the time to keep our mouth closed. And we need to have wisdom to say, I'm not in the right right place right now. I need to just not say anything because I can feel my blood boiling. So yes, there's a biblical way to approach someone who sinned against you, and we're actually going to look at that next time. there's, there are times when we do need to approach somebody and, and share a concern that we have with them, that we see some type of a pattern of sin in their life. So what I'm not saying is that we don't ever approach somebody who's wronged us, because that's actually biblical to do. Now, while we can overlook many offenses, there are times where we need to have wisdom to be able to humbly, lovingly go to somebody... When they have done wrong. And we're going to look at that, Lord willing, next time. So lastly, when it comes to conflict management, we looked at it starts with you and I. Right? We must be active in managing and working out conflict. We must pursue peace. Lastly, we must implore help when needed. We must implore help when needed. Let's look back at our text. After he urges these two women to live in harmony in the Lord, he then implores another person in the church to help these women. He says in verse three, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement. Also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And by the way, the book of life is the book of life from all eternity where God records the names of his chosen people that he would save from eternity past. And Paul is saying, look, you true companion, help these women. These women, they're true believers. They love Christ, but they need help. Sometimes in our conflicts, we need to seek outside help. We need to go to a dear brother or dear sister in Christ and say, look, I'm in a conflict right now. I need some help. Can you give me some wisdom? By the way, this circles back with the need to discern those who are seeking Christ. And we need to get wisdom and help from them. Not the people who could care less about Christ, who have a humanistic worldview, who look to man's ways and man's wisdom. We definitely don't need to go to those people to ask for help. We need to find the people who are seeking to be like Christ and we need to get them to help us. So whether you're having a conflict at work, whether you're having a conflict within the home or a conflict with someone at church or a friendship or whoever, sometimes we need to implore help. Now when Paul says true companion, if you look there in the text, this word in the Greek where there's two words, true or genuine, the word for companion can also be a name and many Bible scholars believe that this is actually a name of somebody within the church that Paul is imploring them to help these women. You know, he uses the name of the ladies in verse two, then he uses Clement's name. So most Bible, many Bible scholars rather, say that this is actually an elder or deacon in the church, that he's asking to help these women in their conflict, to help them in their struggle. So again, we must implore help when needed. And this also speaks... To the seriousness of the issue. When he's now imploring a leader of the church to help these women. Again, does it help you understand the seriousness uh, of the issue that's going on? And Paul wants to address this. So we need not to be uh, prideful. Where we're not seeking godly help in conflicts that we have. We need to be humble enough to seek help from godly influences as Paul says in chapter three. So to conclude, friends, the church of Philippi, although they were strong doctrinally, they were grounded in the roots and rooted in the faith. They had a lot of good things. They had leadership in place. Chapter one, verse one. They were evangelistic. They were loving. They were caring. They sent money to Paul. We'll see that here in a few weeks. They sent Epaphroditus to care for Paul. They were a loving church. They were a doctrinally sound church. However, they struggled with unity. And when they struggled with unity, it robbed them of the joy that they had in the Lord. And that's why joy is an underlying theme of the epistle as well. Paul addresses unity throughout the epistle bit by bit, leading up and working his way to this specific issue that was hurting the church. Now, you might wonder, what happened to the church of Philippi? Did they heed Paul word, Paul's words? What happened to these two ladies, Udiah and Sintichi? Did they work it out? Did they did it get worse? Did this become a cancer in the church and the church blow up and dissolve? As we see so many churches that have these conflicts that are about the color of the carpet, about silly things where it just festers and erupts and all of a sudden the church is split. The church is gone because they couldn't manage conflict. Now we know there are serious reasons to uh, dissolve the church, but we wonder where were these, what happened to the church of Philippi? Well, just so as you have it, Polycarp of Smyrna, if you heard of him, one of our church one of the church fathers, he wrote a letter to the Philippians about 50 years later. If you've never read this letter, it's remarkable. And it's unrefutable uh, as far as the evidence for this letter. Saturated with Scripture. Fifty years later, New Testament Scriptures that he quotes time after time after time. It's a remarkable letter. It's not, it's not an infallible Word of God, but it, it does help us to put in perspective. He writes to the same church, the Church of Philippi, fifty years later, And he had such great things to say about this church. They were thriving. They were unified. They were loving. No mention of any type of unity issues. No mention of these two women and what happened to them. So we can derive from that a little bit, I think, that they seemed to heed Paul's words. They were not hearers of the word only, they were doers of the word. They heard Paul's word from the Holy Spirit. They repented of their sin. They turned to God and began dealing with conflict in the church in a godly way. Fifty years later, 50 years from now, how would you like the next generation to look back on your home, on this church, on your, on you? How would you want the next generation to look back? I pray that they would look back and say, wow, they were doers of the word. They grew in their Christ likeness. They managed conflict biblically and they impacted the culture both with proclaiming the gospel but also in the way that they managed life and as they shine the light of Jesus to those around us. May the next generation say that about us. So friends, if we truly want to grow in our Christ-likeness, if that is your goal, friends, your duty is to manage conflict in a God-honoring and biblical way. And there's such amazing peace when we do that. After we humble ourselves, after we get past the hurting of our pride, and I can think back as I was looking through this text, I can think back of small and large conflicts on things. Wow, I definitely didn't do that. Wow, I definitely let my emotions get the best of me there. and I acted out of of anger, out of a, a wrong motive, and I should have just kept quiet, or I should have spoken where I didn't speak. So let us use this text, let us use the word of God to help us grow in managing conflict and may Christ be glorified, amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your infallible word. We thank you, God, that we don't need to come up with our own ideas on how to manage conflict amongst ourselves, but Lord, you prescribe it right here in your word. So, Father, I pray that you would help us, God. Help us. Lord, we know conflict is always right around the corner. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these truths to heart. Help us, God, to think back at conflicts we've been involved in, small and large. Help us to learn from those. Help us to grow in our Christ likeness, Lord, so that you would be glorified, that the world would see our witness and would see our love for one another. Even though we might have serious disagreements or conflicts, God, but if we're truly brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would help us to manage through those for the sake of our witness, for the glory of Christ. Lord, we thank you that we could gather together today to worship you. And Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts with this with this word. That you would be glorified. And Lord, Help us, God, as we look next time, Lord, to how to avoid sinful conflicts. I pray that your Holy Spirit and your word would peel the layers back, would do some heart work within me, within us. In Jesus' name, amen.